This is recording number 10780 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the sixth and final message in the Tough Stuff series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, August 31, 2008. This message is titled, Taking Your Life in Your Hands. First Samuel chapter 31, and today we're going to uh, finish uh, our study that we're, we've called Tough Stuff. The title of this message is Taking Your Life in Your Hands, Suicide, Euthanasia, and the Right to Die. But I want to say at the outset, I really, you know, I've, I've felt like the Lord wanted me to talk to you guys or with you guys about this subject for at least, at least a year, maybe even longer. And I've hesitated, put it off, postponed it, and whatnot. And then when I knew we were going to do this particular series of messages, I knew I couldn't escape it. It's just, just part of this tough stuff deal. And I really felt like um, what the Lord said to me, that this is the reason why we need to talk about this, is because it has much, much more to do with how we live than how we die. So before we get into this, I want you to... Just flip that switch in your mind. This is about how we live, not so much about how we die. Beginning at uh, verse 1 of chapter 31 of the book of Samuel, we're just going to read four verses here, and then we're going to move to the first chapter of the next book, 2 Samuel, chapter 1. Verse 1, chapter 31, 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. We're in the middle of a battle here. The Philistines uh, uh, are waging war against the Israelites. The king of Israel at this time was the first king of Israel, Saul. He is in the period of his life where he was... Uh, you know, the really the awful, sorry period of his life. In the initial stages, he, he was doing so well. And God uh, had Samuel anoint him as king because he just had everything right as far as his relationship with God, his humility, the whole thing. And then he just got drunk with power and pride and just messed up terribly. And the, and the Bible says even that, uh, that God withdrew his anointing from, from Saul. And so this is in a period of time where Saul's kingdom is in decline. David, the next of the David and Goliath fame, David will be the next king. He's already been anointed as king. But because Saul knows that his days are numbered and that David is going to be, you know, in his heart of hearts, he knows David is going to be king. He has done everything he can to try to hunt David down and kill him. So that's the backdrop that all this is taking place. And, and then uh, the Philistines are waging war now against the Israelites. And uh, Saul is involved in this battle and it's not going well. And that's what we read there when it says that the, um, uh, Israel has fled. The armies of Israel are running for their lives from before the Philistines. And many, many of them have fallen slain on this, at this lo- geographic location called Mount Gilboa. Verse 2. 
Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Uh, anyway, these are Saul's sons, and they've, so they have slain three of Saul's sons, and they're closing in on Saul himself. Verse 3, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely, terminally wounded. That's what that means, uh, severely wounded by the archers. Saul is going to die now. He's been wounded to the point of death. He is terminal. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men uh, come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. Saul asks, begs, his, he knows he's going to die. He begs his armor bearer, please kill me. Please end my life. So that I can die with dignity and so that I will not suffer. Because when it uh, talks about uh, he's afraid of the Philistines abusing him, he means being tortured. Please kill me. Please end my life. I'm going to die anyway. End my life so that I can die with dignity, not at the hands of my enemies. And so that I will not suffer. But the armor bearer, who, by the way, is in those days, your armor bearer was as close to you as anybody. You had a relationship with him that was very intimate because that person was responsible for protecting you. And so it's not like he, he's saying this to a stranger. He's talking to someone very close to him, almost like family. And he's saying to him, I'm going to die anyway. Please end my life again so that I can die with dignity and so that I won't suffer. Now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll pick up the story as it continues. Saul's armor bearer chooses not to. He's, it says he's afraid. He's afraid to take Saul's life, to end Saul's life, even though he will die anyway. And so Saul decides to take it upon himself to commit suicide, and he falls on his spear or his sword. A little unclear as to which, but same result. He tries to kill himself that way, tries to end his, end his life. Now, we'll pick up the story at verse 2, 2 Samuel chapter 1. On the third day... Behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. So now David and his entourage have been on the run, hiding from Saul. And uh, so this um, person who has escaped from the battle uh, arena of uh, the Philistines against the Israelites. Have, he's gone and hunted Dave down, saw, David and sought him. And he comes, falls on the ground. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. 
So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, Now listen carefully. As I, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, meaning thrust himself through with his spear. Okay? He's already been mortally wounded by the archers and he's tried to commit suicide by leaning on his spear. This guy passes by at this moment and indeed it says the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. So this guy, he realizes that the, the enemy is very close. Saul's tried to commit suicide but his life is still in him. Now verse 7. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and, sa- and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen or tried to commit suicide. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid? to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him, so he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, a couple of things I want you to take note of. David was Saul's sworn enemy, number one. David has been running from this guy, Saul, for years now. And everywhere he goes, Saul has been in pursuit of him, trying to kill him. You would think that when Saul, the, the news comes that Saul is dead, David would be throwing a party. But oh no, he tears his clothes and along with all of his men, they weep and they mourn the passing of Saul. And then... They, they, take, they execute capital punishment on the one who uh, was ultimately responsible for Saul's death. He was not a mercy killer. He was considered by David a murderer. Now, I don't want to get too intense with this, but I want you to see that God values our lives. And David understood that even his enemy's life had value. And, we, and, and it was we, he, in his mind, no one had the right to usurp God's timing and God's authority in, in how that life would end. Do you see that with me? Now let's, let's uh, define some terms. First... Um, Suicide, and maybe we all know what that means, but let's just get on the record with, with it. Suicide is intentionally causing one's own death, and that can be by active or passive means. Active means I do something to end my life. Passive means I um, 
don't take the measures that I could to keep my life from ending. Euthanasia is uh, causing the pain, the, uh, the death of someone else who is suffering with a painful, incurable, and or terminal physical condition. We sometimes, another way we talk about this is physician-assisted or explanal-assisted suicide where someone else is helping uh, me end my life. That can also be active or passive. And euthanasia can also be voluntary or involuntary. And voluntary means I want this done. Involuntary means it's being done to me regardless of my preference. I'm not going to talk about involuntary uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide today at all. So uh, we're just going to focus on um, uh, voluntary, active, or passive euthanasia and suicide. The last term I want to define is the right to die. How many of you have heard that used? The right to die. It's tossed around a lot in our culture. This debate keeps kind of bubbling to the surface. Do, do we have the right to die? The right to die meaning the possession of an inherent sovereignty over the circumstances of one's death or dying. In other words, I have the right to kill myself actively or passively. I have the right to be allowed to die. Voluntary um, passive euthanasia. Or I have the right to kill myself through the agency of someone else. And that would be voluntary active euthanasia. Those are our definitions. So when we talk about these things today, that's, that's what I'm referring to. I want to have you watch this little video clip with me that uh, is, uh, to me, it, it describes what m- many, if not most of the people in our culture believe about this issue. See where you stand. Hello, YouTube. This is a response to uh, Gender Zero, Kevin, uh, and his uh, video, actually a three-part video, on physician-assisted suicide. Um, he makes a lot of good points, and uh, most of them, of course, are, uh, he says he really likes statistics, are based on statistical analyses and, um, and on reports of um, apparently a medical journal. Um, I just want to approach it from a different angle because um, I really believe that human beings belong to themselves and that all of us have a perfect right to commit suicide under any circumstances, whatever, if we choose to. Now, before anybody gets too excited about that and says, well, young people are depressed and they they, uh, may change their minds and so forth. Yes, of course. And there need to be a lot of um, safeguards, especially when you're talking about physician-assisted suicide. Safeguards are certainly necessary. Uh, But um, there are people who are so depressed that they just don't want to face life anymore. Now, it may be a cowardly way to, um, uh, to deal with it. Some people think it's, um, it's the most selfish act possible, and they may be right. But in the long run, I think that we belong to ourselves, not to some god. And this is why I think that the laws exist against suicide. You know, it's, <laughs> it's against the law to try to commit suicide. They'll take you and put you in prison, which may very much enhance your, your reasons for wanting to die in the first place, um, because it is against the law to try to c- kill yourself. And these laws, whether, uh, whether it's admitted or not, really come from uh, 
religion. They come from the overall view of um, of uh, societies, American and others, uh, that um, we are not our own property. We are the property of the God that made us, according to those who believe in such things. And that um, only he has the right to terminate our lives at whatever his pleasure. Meaning that uh, if we have uh, ALS, for example, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, and we are suffering consistently and constantly over long, long, agonizing periods of time, that we have to just wait it out until God decides it's time for us to go and suffer whatever comes. I don't think so. I think we belong to ourselves. Notice that he uh, specifically refers to example of a, a person with ALS or Lou, Lou Gehrig's disease. And if you, disease. Sometimes my mouth is behind my brain. You ever had that problem? Anyway, you're going to hear from someone with ALS in just a few minutes by, by way of another video. So just keep that in mind. All right. I want to talk to you about the principles that underlie our Christian viewpoint on this issue. First... That life is a gift from God, a sacred trust to be lived out within its divinely ordained context. Think about Job. Now, everybody gets real nervous when we bring up Job because we're all afraid that that will happen to us. (laughs) But here was a guy who lost everything, including his health. In fact, his wife says, curse God and die. Things are so bad and so miserable. Your, your body is covered with boils. Curse God and die. This, this life, the quality of this life, is not worth living. But Job, what did he say? He said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Think about Paul in a Roman prison as he writes to, to the Philippians uh, the, the church in Philippi. This guy has been, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been imprisoned, he's been ridiculed, every kind of thing that you can imagine, he's been through it. And he's holed up there in a, or locked up there in a prison in Rome, wearied, uh, uh, battered, and looking back over his life and thinking, man, I think I, I'm going to cash it in. I've done enough. I've started enough churches. I've preached the gospel enough. I've paid my dues. He said, wouldn't it be better just to go home and be with the Lord? But then he says, no. It'll be better for your sake. And he's talking about, he's specifically talking to the people in Philippi. And he makes this choice. Even though for himself, he's thinking, man, I'd rather go be with Jesus. He says, no, my time is not yet. How about the Lord himself? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's looking forward, quote, quote, to a cruel dying. And that he knows what lies ahead of him at Calvary and in uh, route to Calvary in terms of physical suffering. And in fact, he says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, you can do all things. Take this cup from me, he says emphatically. But then comes to the point where he says, not my will yours and he surrenders even though he he surrenders to the lord who is the life giver and who insists that we live out the life he gives us in the context he gives us so that's one of the principles that guys are understanding about this the other one that i want to refer to this morning 
is that righteous dying involves these two things. Honoring the value of one's life by avoiding a premature death. In other words, it's our responsibility, our God-given responsibility to make sure that we last as long as we can. That we do the things that we can to make sure that we preserve the life God has given to us, that we steward it well. That's a, a part of what it means to, be, to have a Christian understanding about life and about dying. The second part of this, uh, righteous dying, involves honoring God's sovereignty by not attempting to dictate the conditions or timing of death's occurrence. That's part of God's, uh, it's part of God's realm as sovereign over us. The one who gave us life, how that life ends is up to him, not me. And a righteous dying honors that. Um, you know, there's a, the, in the Bible, several places talk about witchcraft. It's talking about, some, about someone who's trying to make or manufacture their own future. Think of it like this. Now, I'll give you a little, uh, a little imagery. That woman with the black hat, pointy black hat, leaning over a cauldron. Let's see, I'll put a little of this in and a little of that, and we'll make this happen. Well, we do that, don't we? I will, I'll take this ingredient and that ingredient and I will make my future. I will make. And, and the Bible says, witchcraft is as the sin of rebellion. We are, we, as, as believers in the Almighty, we are not manufacturing or creating our own future. Um, I want to show you now, in light of what I just said, another video. This is a man who has the exact condition that was referred to in that other video. He has ALS, and he will die. He's dead now. I want you to see his perspective. And talk about power to the people. Joining us from his home in Kent, Washington, is a man suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease. This former Boeing computer programmer has been told that he has only months to live. But John Payton is using that time to accomplish a mighty task. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, John, uh, first of all, uh, how are you doing? I know uh, you have only um, a few months, few short months to live. Are you in pain right now as you're doing this interview? No, pain is not normally a component of Lou Gehrig disease. My breathing difficulties give you an indication of what I'm in for. We typically die from pulmonary insufficiency. Well, John, I want to know how a man with only a few months to live decides to focus on one task, and you're focused on defeating Washington State's ballot initiative that would allow for so-called death with dignity, which is assisted suicide. Why that issue? Well, I'm one of those people who is somewhat a target of the initiative and I don't know how we as a society could really consider making doctors into killers and that's what we're really doing with this a physician writes a prescription for a lethal dose of medicine he becomes an accomplice in suicide he's really assisting in the killing of an innocent human being 
And John, I think a lot of uh, people who are for this type of assisted uh, suicide would say, look, what about the quality of life? I mean, my, uh, you know, look, you know, people suffering like you, what kind of quality of life do you really have? What do you say to those people? I have a marvelous quality of life. Right now I'm totally dependent. I can do nothing for myself. I'm effectively paralyzed. But I have a family. I have friends. I have my church community. I have loving support all around me. I don't understand how anyone could deny that I have a very high quality of life. And it gives me to understand and be compassionate toward those without the support that I have. But rather than giving them the temptation to kill themselves, we should be trying to figure out how to help them have the quality of life that I enjoy. Well, John, your family uh, must be so proud of you. Um, I'm trying to hold back the tears right here, right now, but um, what an amazing life lesson of every moment on this earth. We all have something to give, and every life, no matter how compromised or medically compromised are the challenges, every single life is worth protecting and to be cherished. And, and I just want to say, I am, this is the best segment of this show, and this is the best segment of this whole week, because you were on it, and thank you for doing what you're doing, and thank you for just being there. As long as you're here, thank you. You're quite welcome, Laura, and thank you for helping me get the message out. Absolutely. God bless you. John Payne. Bless you, too. If you'll uh, bear with me, I'm going to dive through um, a few applications of these principles we've been talking about. I want to talk to you about a suicide. There are two types. There's self-sacrificing, and this is unrelated to a physical condition. And Jesus is the example of that, where he gave his life for us. But that's really not where I want to focus this morning, because uh, I think that's pretty self uh, explanatory, but there is self-serving suicide. And the Bible uh, makes it clear that God is sensitive to our emotional suffering. And when people come to the point where they commit suicide, God is not um, untouched by the path of suffering or emotional trauma that's led them to that place. But what most people who come to that point aren't aware of or thinking uh, carefully or rationally about is the additional and unbearable pain and guilt that will be inflicted on their loved ones when they take their life. I remember very clearly a young man who received the Lord in our church, not this one, uh, but uh, one of the other churches that Sue and I have pastored, and he had had a long-term struggle with drug addiction, and at the point of him uh, receiving the Lord as, as his Savior, he uh, was in a... Um, a recovery program and was doing well and was away from, from drugs. But after uh, some period of time, I don't remember, it was a relatively short period of time, he had a relapse and was so overcome with the shame and guilt of that that he decided his life, or that things, everybody else would be better off if he ended his life because he was causing so much trauma to everyone, and so he committed suicide. And I remember being at, uh, conducting his funeral and seeing the heartache and the pain on every face there. And, if, and, I, and I just, you know, I remember thinking, boy, if, if you'd only known, you know, the, the pain that you were going to inflict, this doesn't solve anybody's problems. Um, 
But I want to uh, underscore the fact that suicide in and of itself is not damning. There are those sections of the Church of Jesus Christ that teach that if a person commits suicide, there is no hope for heaven for them. Because sin is, suicide is a sin, and because that's your final act, you are locked in a sinful state, and you will, you'll spend eternity in hell. And that's just not how great the, God, the grace of God works. It's not up to me to make sure that I am uh, current in all my repentance. It's, it's the, the cross of Christ ended, solved the sin problem. And when I received Jesus as my Savior, it's not that I never sin anymore, but my, I, the forgiveness has already been applied to me. So uh, suicide is not necessarily damning, but uh, we never gain God's blessing by usurping or seizing from him his authority. That's not the root to blessing. And so those who come to that distorted frame of mind where they think that they are somehow going to uh, escape the cruelties of this life and, and move into some blissful state or, or unconscious state that will be better than what they have are mistaken. And I don't mean that by, by saying that that a person who is a believer and commits suicide is not going to heaven. I don't mean that, but I want you to consider one more thing, and that is that all of us as believers, the Bible tells us we'll stand before the Lord one day to give an account of how we lived our lives. Not for the sake of judgment, not so that God passed judgment on us, but for the sake of reward. And the Bible says that everything we've done is going to be laid on the table. The wood, the hay and the stubble, along with the gold and the silver, you know. And it's going to be tried by fire. And what's left um, will be, there will be reward based on that. And for those who have committed suicide and stand there on that day and see so much of what their life could have been, go up and smoke you cannot convince me that there isn't going to be some measure of regret. When you stand before the one who gave his life for you, and in that moment of accountability, even in his gracious gaze, to know that the life he gave you to steward you have squandered, there's going to be some measure, some measure of regret there. Now the Bible also says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And heaven is not going to be a place where we spend, um, the Bible says there's no sadness, no sorrow in heaven. But to think we just go you know, skipping from this life into the next so casually, um, I think is a mistake. Just a couple more things. I want to talk to you about uh, euthanasia just briefly and give you a couple of uh, applications regarding that. In the case of an incurable, but not terminal, in other words, you have a, a condition that can be cured, but it's not going to kill you. Or in the case of a terminal, but not dying condition, you have something, you have a condition that will kill you, but you're not in the throes of death yet. Death is not imminent. In both of those situations, I believe that to take your life, either by suicide or by euthanasia, is discounting a known future. I mean, excuse me, discounting an unknown future that you could learn to cope. 
with your situation. That there could be advances in medical treatment that could change the outcome. And it's discounting the, the fact that there's a God in heaven who can divinely heal you as well. Listen to this quickly. Pick this up from a, a magazine. When Dax Cohort uh, uh, was critically burned in a propane gas explosion near Henderson, Texas, he begged a passing farmer for a gun with which to kill himself. On his way to the hospital, he pleaded with the medic to let him die. For weeks, his life hung by a thread. For more than a year against his will, he endured excruciating treatment. His right eye and several fingers were removed. His left eye was sewn shut. His pain and his protests were unrelenting. One night, he crawled out of bed to try to throw himself out a window, but was discovered and prevented. That was 17 years ago. Colwert is now a law school graduate, married, living in Texas, and managing his investments. To end your life... And that, the, these kinds of situations is discounting an unknown future and it is abandoning a known future. Regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstances, all of us have a relationship with God to be lived out till he chooses the end. A relationship with God. I may be terminal. I may have a condition that is going to end my life. But in those days, I still have a relationship with God. I can still know him, know his presence, love and worship him. There's also relationships that we have with others that can be enhanced and deepened in that period of time. And every one of us, regardless of what conditions we find ourselves in, whatever circumstances we're in, all of us, have a destiny. And I could say much, much more about that. I'm just going to read a, a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The Apostle Paul is speaking these words. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Philippians 4, 11 and 13 say, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, uh, euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia may be um, appropriate in some situations. When, there's, when a person is unconscious or comatose and there's brain death, brain death is a, uh, a certain diagnosis. The person's not there anymore. And in that case, I, it's my opinion, based on the things we've talked about today, that life support should cease because it'd be akin to me standing up a corpse here, just propping it up against the wall just so you could all see it. It'd be, it's, it's not appropriate. But th- then there are people who are in this, the persistent vegetative state. In that case, the diagnosis is uncertain and much... I mean, excuse me, not the diagnosis, but the prognosis is uncertain And much, much caution needs to be exercised in that case. What about when there is imminent death, when I have a terminal condition and I'm in 
the final stages. Death is at the door. Um, then I think that treatment refusal or withdrawal is justified when it is extraordinary, meaning unusual, extreme, extraordinary. I think that kind of treatment can be refused. Uh, if the treatment itself only extends the agony or if the treatment is for a secondary treatable condition. In other words, you're dying of bone cancer. You'll be dead soon. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, that we are um, required to continue to take insulin for di our diabetes. I want to just get to this one last thing before we close. My wife and I have just in the last uh, six months been through this. And many of us in this room either have or will where we are faced with the prospect of administering voluntary, active euthanasia to someone we love. And I believe that that's justified when every one of the following things is true. Follow me. Number one, that the act itself is not evil. What you're going to do now to help this person end their life or what you're going to sign off on someone else doing to end their life, that act of, uh, itself is not evil. In our case, it was making sure that pain uh, uh, medication, uh, palliative care was given um, to uh, Sue's mom who uh, was um, in need of it. So the act itself is not evil. Number two, that the act produces a benefit while causing death. And that the benefit is not produced by the death. There has to be a benefit that's not the death itself. Fourth, that the benefit is needed. That what I'm going to, what we're going to do to you now is something you actually need. And fifth, that the benefit cannot be produced by means other than those that also cause the death. And finally, that the death is foreseen, but not intended. I wish we had time to talk more about all this, but I want to get it on the record. These six things, if all of them are true, then I believe that active voluntary euthanasia can be justified when a person is facing imminent death. We've talked about suicide. We've talked about euthanasia. The last thing in our list is the right to die. We have circled around that a little bit. I want to come in and just nail it. God gave us as human beings the right to die. Regardless of what the laws of any state or nation um, have to say about it, God gave us the right to die. In the Garden of Eden, you can choose the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave us that choice. After the law, Moses said to the people in the books recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death. Please choose life. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 6, 23 says, The wages of sin is death. Gift of God is eternal life. God has given us the right to die. But when we come to faith in Christ, we surrender that right. We surrender that right. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When we come to faith in Christ, 
At the point of rebirth, we surrender the right to die. We acknowledge the sovereignty of God.